Several years ago, I received an email. The email contained a story about a Michigan couple who decided that they would go on a vacation to Florida. They wanted to escape the kind of icy, extra cold winter they were having, and so they planned on going to Florida, and they found the hotel that they had stayed at 35 years earlier for their honeymoon. Well, they, uh, because of their hectic schedules and because of uh, everything that was going on in their life, the husband decided that he would leave uh, on Thursday, and because of their crazy schedule, the wife would leave the day after that. She would leave on Friday. So the husband got down to Florida, he checked into the hotel, and much to, to his surprise, he saw that there was a computer in the hotel that he was staying at. So he decided he'd let his wife know that he arrived, and he sat down at the computer, and he began to type an email to her. Except he did one thing wrong in that email. He forgot one letter of her email address. And unbeknownst to him, he went ahead and sent her this message and clicked send. Well, meanwhile, in Texas, a widow had just come back from the funeral of her husband. He was a pastor who had gone to be with the, be with the Lord just a few days before that, following a heart attack. Well, she came home and she decided that she needed a little encouragement, so she thought that she would check her email and she'd check in with some of her friends and family members who probably would have sent her an email that day. Well, as soon as she got to the first email, she screamed out loud and she fainted. And her son ran into the room to see what was wrong and he found his mother lying there on the floor and he looked at the computer and on the computer screen, this is what he read. To my loving wife, subject, I've arrived. Date, October 16th, 2004, and the message was this. I know you're surprised to hear from me. <laughs> they have computers up here now. <laughs> and they allow you to send an email to some of your loved ones. I see everything, I've just arrived and been checked in, and I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. I hope that your journey is as uneventful as mine. I look forward to seeing you. P.S. It is stinking hot down here. <laughs> I've been waiting on that one for a long time. I, you know, just like the widow who thought for a moment that maybe her husband had gone to the wrong place and thought, you know, for a long time that he was going to heaven, um, Heaven is a subject that has a lot of mystery surrounding it, isn't it? It's a subject that we really don't know a whole lot about. And even if you've been a Christ follower for a long time, um, you may not know a whole lot about the subject of heaven, and you may not know a whole lot about the subject of hell. And, and some of you who are here today, um, you, you've never been told about that and you've specifically never been told um, how, what it takes to get to heaven. And so today we begin this six-week journey with heaven demystified. And during this series, I want us to consider six common myths about heaven. There are myths and, and subject matters all over the place in terms of our understanding of heaven. And so I want us to consider these six common myths about heaven. And I want us to search the Bible. I want us to search God's Word, search Scripture to find out what myths can be proven, which are plausible, and which are just completely busted. 
And so as we take a look at these myths, as we use God's word as our guide, as we use scripture as our source, we're going to be determining that some of these myths about heaven are absolutely true. They're proven according to God's word. Some of them are plausible, meaning that scripture doesn't deny them, but doesn't specifically state them that way. Or we may find a myth or two over the course of these six weeks that we just learn are completely busted. They're completely not true. And my hope and my prayer for each one of you, no matter where you are on the spiritual continuum, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, if you came into these doors today just seeking, just kind of wondering, or maybe even skeptical, that no matter where you are on your journey, that you would have a clearer understanding of what your eternal destination can be, and specifically what it means, according to God's word, uh, on how to get to heaven. And so we're going to be doing that over the course of these next six weeks. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name's Todd. I'm glad that you're here. I'm the lead pastor. So glad that you're here. Maybe some of you are from Michigan, and you thought maybe I was talking about you on my opening uh, illustration there. Uh, we're glad that you're here wherever you are from. And uh, I want to remind you that um, uh, we have our audience on our podcast. Thank you for joining on our podcast. If you're with us via our podcast, you can access our podcast 24-7. Um, throughout day or night. It is a rebroadcast of each week's message, and you can go right to our website, right on the front page of our website, which will take you to iTunes, and you can find our podcast there. Also, starting today, Cynthia mentioned it, if you're not a paper person, um, we have our notes that are available, and you can go to those right now on your device or your pad, and you can, or your notebook, and you can um, have the notes all the blanks are already filled in, so you don't have to wonder uh, what they are. And uh, for those of you who use version, I want to encourage you to interact with version and copy and paste those. Also, Cynthia mentioned Randy Alcorn. Um, I've used um, several dozen different sources in my study in preparing for this message series, but one in particular is Randy Alcorn's Heaven. It is just a good overview of the subject matter, and um, it's uh, theologically accurate. Um, he, he does do some... Uh, supposing in there, and that's fine. Uh, but uh, in terms of heaven itself, I want to encourage you to find that at your local bookstore. Um, we have Heaven Sent here locally, or you can get online and order that. I want to encourage you to do that. And also, there's a Heaven for Kids book that is a companion guide to that. And we have sample copies of both of those in the back. And of course, you can take the questions and answers about heaven, which is also a companion guide to that. And that's free for any of you. Uh, my, uh, my hope would be that you would read it or pass to someone who will and uh, use those as an encouragement to invite people to church. Uh, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, he and his family, they were preparing to uh, go to, on vacation. Uh, they live in the Atlanta area, and they, I don't even know where they were going. For all I know, they could, be, you know, could have been heading to Hilton Head. But he was so excited about going on vacation, and he got on Facebook and Twitter, and um, he posted all of these posts about heaven, or about his vacation, um, which was probably heaven for him. He was really excited about going on vacation. Uh, he talked about how excited his kids were to go on vacation and how excited his wife was to go on vacation. He talked about how he was looking so forward to having a few days off from work. And he even talked about how he was excited about the journey uh, with his family to vacation. So um, he was very excited and he, he went on and on and on about going on vacation. And so he talked about that. And I, I got thinking about the fact that when we go on a trip, when we prepare to leave on a journey, when we go somewhere, whether it's vacation or whether it's a business trip or whether it's a short visit to a city or a town that may 
be uh, even near to us. Um, we, for the most part, we know where we're going, don't we? We know exactly where we're going. You can get on Google and you can find out everything about any destination that you want to go to today. I mean, there are millions and millions of pages, um, you know, on different places that you can go to. For, for instance, I did a little research because I just was interested. If you type in Hilton Head Island into Google, which I'm sure some of you will probably do now that I said this, um, there, are over, um, there are over 29 million results just for Hilton Head Island. You can find out everything, probably some things you don't want to know about Hilton Head Island, just by searching in Google search uh, Hilton Head Island. Disney. In Disney, there are 788 million pages of information that you can find just by doing a Google search. If you want to go to Hawaii, some of you are like, yeah, that'd be great. I'd like to leave there. Now, uh, there are 488 million pieces of information out there if you do a Google search on Hawaii. We can find out every detail about every destination, wherever it is practically in the world, we can absolutely know when we arrive what restaurant we want to eat at, what kind of entertainment we want to uh, be involved with. We know exactly where we're staying. Um, you can you could even go on some places and see the exact room that you're going to be staying in in a particular hotel. It's amazing the information that is accessible to us in this day and age about different destinations, which is why it's so surprising that we place so little emphasis and so little focus on the place that we're going to spend eternity when we die. We just don't know that much about heaven. And we don't really study about heaven. Think about it for a moment. You may leave here today and you may go to lunch later or go to the beach later or go to the pool or go back home later. And you might have a conversation with a friend or a family member about a trip that's upcoming. And in the course of conversation, talking about your excitement about that trip would be very normal. I can't wait. We're going to Charleston next week, and I can't wait to see all the different Rainbow Row. And I can't wait to go visit all the different historical sites in Charleston. I'm so excited about Charleston. And it would be completely normal for you to have that conversation. But if you left here today, and you went to lunch, and you were looking at your friend, and you're like, man, I can't wait to go to heaven. And there's going to be streets of gold, and there's going to be pearly gates. And there's, you know, we're, we're going to get to see Jesus. If you had that conversation at lunch, they might look at you like, okay, this is a little strange conversation. I'm not sure where I can connect here in this conversation. It's very unusual for us to talk about our eternal destination. And we place so much effort and we place so much emphasis on a place that we will go for days or maybe weeks. Yet when it comes to where we are going forever, we put little thought into that. We put very little emphasis into that. And because of that, we just don't know that much about heaven as a culture and even a church culture. And so I pray and I hope and my, my prayer for all of us is, is that heaven would be revealed to us. And any fear that we might have of dying would be subdued because we look to God's word to find out what heaven is like. I would imagine... I would imagine that part of the reason 
that we don't want to know about the afterlife and we don't even want to know about heaven. And for those of us who are even Christ followers, we may not want to find out more is because of fear. C.S. Lewis said this, people don't often talk about things they fear. So one of my prayers is during this series that wherever you are on that spiritual journey and that spiritual continuum, that fear would be taken away and that you would have a hope and an excitement and an anticipation about heaven. Let's take a look at this first myth. The first myth that we're going to consider today's myth is heaven is a real place. And if you have your notes, you can take a look at this. Um, to begin this series on heaven, I want us to consider uh, one of the most common myths about heaven. And we're going to use scripture as our guide to either prove it, we're going to even render it plausible, or proven plausible, or busted. And so we're going to take a look at whether or not heaven is a real place. I want to let you know also that part of the reason that I'm, I'm so passionate about this series, it's been in my mind for several years to do a full series on, on heaven, is because in 2007 I lost my grandmother, Boyd, and in just a few weeks ago um, I lost her husband of 50 plus years, um, William W. Boyd, my last living grandfather. And at both funerals, when we went to both funerals, I remember my mom um, asking me, I guess she asked me because I'm a, a pastor and I should know these things, um, tell me about where my mom is. Tell me about where, you know, my dad is. And, and I've got to be honest with you, um, I, I gave her the typical pastor answer. Well, I'm sure he's with Jesus. I'm sure he's in a better, what, place. I'm sure he doesn't feel any pain. And after both of those conversations, I got thinking, I need to know more about heaven. So I want you to know that I, as your pastor, am in this with you. And I've had, the last two months I've been studying this, I've been so excited. It's been so enriching just for my own personal journey. And I pray that it is for you. Let's take a look at our myth this morning in terms of whether or not heaven is a real place. You can look at your notes and you can follow along. We're going to be all over the place, and then we're going to zero in on one particular passage to end our time this morning. First of all, in the Bible and Scripture, there are three different descriptions in heaven. There are three different descriptions of heaven in Scripture. There's the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. Now, the first heaven, when you see it in Scripture, just like we have uh, words that we use um, that might uh, have the same word but have three different meanings. For instance, the word plane. The word plane can mean something that flies in the air. It can also mean um, a, a level or flat surface, or it can also mean a tool for smoothing or shaping a wood surface. We have many words in the English language that are the same words that mean different things. That's the case with heaven. There are three different things that heaven means, the first of which is the first heaven, and that means earth's atmosphere or the sky. The first heaven is earth's atmosphere or the sky. I love Psalm 19. The psalmist here, King David, he, he's using this word to describe the place where the birds fly. The place where um, you, you might look up and see leaves or see uh, clouds up in the sky. He's describing the earth's atmosphere. Take a look at Psalm 19, verse 1. He says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. 
When David is writing that, when he uses the word, and I'm not going to get into all the, uh, uh, all the specific words that were used in Hebrew and maybe Aramaic and Greek, but we're just going to summarize it in English. The fact is, is that David in this instance was referring to the skies above. And so that's the first heaven. When you hear people refer to the first heaven, that means the skies above. So it's pretty clear that David was referring to the atmosphere that was above him. And he said, the skies, the atmosphere, the clouds, the birds in the air, they all proclaim the glory of God. Secondly, the second heaven is outer space. David in that same psalm goes on to describe outer space. He says this in verse 4, he's talking about creation, and he says, their voice, creation's announcement of the glory of God, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. And he goes on to describe the sun in verse 5. Look at what it says in verse 6. It's rising, speaking of the sun, from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens that David is describing here just a few verses later speaks of the outer space. The skies, the world beyond our world here, not just the atmosphere and all that's contained in it, but the world out there. And he's speaking of outer space. And then lastly is the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. I want you to capture that. The third heaven, the one that we are going to spend our time on here over these next six weeks, the ones that we are going to either prove uh, or or, uh, render plausible or render busted these myths about, is the heaven or the dwelling place of God Almighty. Take a look at the writer of 1 Kings as he is crying out to God for forgiveness of the people. He says, And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place and listen in the heaven. There's There's that word, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. He's calling out to God in his home, in his temple. The dwelling place of God is heaven. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. The New Testament also speaks of the dwelling place of God. Jesus speaks of it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in the same way, let your light shine, this is from Matthew 5, 16, before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the heaven that we're speaking of is not to be confused with the first and second heaven. We are speaking of the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. You see, there's not much mystery anymore about our atmosphere, is there? There's not much mystery about outer space. We can pretty much know where different planets are and where new planets are, where old planets were. We can know so much about the atmosphere and about outer space. But there is an amazing mystery surrounding the dwelling place of God Almighty. We're going to try to find out a little bit about that mystery, and there are going to be some things that we just can't figure out. There are going to be some things that are just unknown, that we have to wait for, that we have to hope for, that we have to look forward to understanding. Now, we're going to move in a moment to point number two, and just spoiler alert here, we're going to go ahead and figure out if the, if the myth is proven, plausible, or busted right here, number two. Uh, but I don't want you to leave, okay? Please don't leave. You know, like, ah, we're going to prove it and let's move on. I can go to lunch now because there's so much more to this myth, okay? So point number two, heaven is a real physical place. 
Heaven is a real physical place. I want you to say that with me. Are you ready? On three. We're going to all say that together. One, two, three. Heaven is a real physical place. There needs to be from God's word no ambiguity about that. Heaven is a real physical place. And if you ever hear otherwise, you can know from God's word that it's not true. Let me show you Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. The writer of Hebrews is describing all of these men and women who are heroes of the faith. It's often called the Hall of Faith chapter. It's a chapter that's dedicated to describing all of these men and women who were heroes of the faith. And he pauses right in the middle of talking about all these heroes of the faith. And he says this, but as it is, they, these men and women, desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. You see, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God Almighty, writes that heaven is a country. It's not a metaphor. It is an actual place. You see, sometimes we read in Ezekiel and Isaiah, and we read in Revelation, and we read Jesus' words about heaven, and we think it's a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It's a specific place. He says they desire a better place country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared for them a city and with those words we get a glimpse into what heaven is heaven's going to be the most glorious city we'll get to that in a few moments look at jesus's words secondly to prove that it's a physical place jesus words to his disciple in john 14 he says this in 14 1 through 3 let not your hearts be troubled troubled believe in god Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a what? Place for me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, not only does the writer of Hebrews describe it as a place, a heavenly country, but Jesus himself calls it a place. He talks about how he's preparing a room, which is a place. He talks about the fact that it's his father's what? House, a physical place. It's described as a city. Heaven is absolutely, positively a physical place. There may be hundreds and hundreds of mysteries about heaven, but one thing that we can know is if we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, when we die, there is a place that is prepared for us. You know, the whole idea of um, uh, people experiencing this place called heaven is kind of a hot topic these days. Near-death experiences, am I right? Uh, many of you have uh, read several books. One of the most famous books is Heaven is for Real. The story of a three-year-old, Colton Burpo, who was three years old at the time, that he experienced heaven and after that went on to describe things that as a three- and four-year-old he should know nothing about. I'm reading a book by a uh, neurosurgeon called Proof of Heaven. His name's Eben Alexander. And he describes a near-death experience and describes some of the things that he experienced and saw. 
And, and some of those things could be verified by Scripture. Some of them maybe not. Same thing with heaven is for real. But the fact is, is that near-death experiences, um, especially in books, it's kind of a very popular and growing genre of people describing, hopefully, their true account of what they believe was a near-death experience. I want to speak to that for a moment because it is very popular. It's kind of become a little bit of pop culture. I think that we need to be careful when we hear those stories and we read those books and maybe see those movies um, to, to not do two things. I think the tendency is to use those experiences to uh, uh, completely verify the truth about heaven, and I think that's very dangerous. But I also think that it's dangerous to completely be dismissive of them. I think God uses experience in people's lives um, to maybe shed some light on different things. But I want you to hear this. We have to stay grounded in Scripture. So anything that you hear about a near-death experience, anything that you hear about someone describing heaven, maybe even if you've had a friend or a relative um, who you have heard maybe a near-death experience or them describing heaven, just verify it with Scripture because that's our source of truth. It's God's word to us. And so if we want to learn about the place that he's prepared for us, we need to go to the book that he has written for our source of truth. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, um, there are several different people that we see in scripture that experienced heaven. Um, Ezekiel uh, uh, was uh, one of them uh, who uh, God gave a picture of heaven. Isaiah, God gave a picture of heaven. But there was Elijah who was actually caught up into heaven, God's word says, and never died. And Enoch who walked with God. In the New Testament, there's a description that Paul gives in Corinthians where he describes how he saw a glimpse of heaven, but God prevented him from writing about it. And then we're going to take a look here in a moment at John, who was on the island of Patmos, all by himself, essentially in solitude, and God gave him a picture of heaven, and I believe sent an angel to him uh, to actually reveal heaven and specifically told John to write these, these things down. And what we have today as a result of that is the inspired book of Revelation. And so if you have your Bibles, if you're on version right now, I'm going to have you turn to Revelation 21. And we're going to spend the rest of our time describing what heaven is like from John's revelation where God Almighty told him to record these things down so that we can have a little bit of a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. Now, for this last point, I'm going to go very quickly through these points because I want to get to one main point that's really the key thought of our whole message. So hang on. We're going to go through Revelation 21. Heaven, our third point today, is described as a place of perfect paradise in Scripture. It's described as a place of perfect paradise in Scripture. Now, disclaimer for a moment. The heaven that we're talking about today is our final, eternal destination. That if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be one day. In a few weeks, we'll be describing exactly how that goes when we die and where we go, uh, where we die and that kind of thing immediately. I'll get to all that. For those of you who are wondering, we'll get to all of that. But for today, what we're describing is that final, eternal destination that ought to give all of us an incredible hope about the future. Let's dive in. First of all, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your heaven will be, first of all, a place where it'll be new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21.1 says. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
And he says, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. Um, that's pretty clear, isn't it? There's not much ambiguity about that verse. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything that we're experiencing here is going to be passed away. And this message series is not a series on end times necessarily. We might hit a few little things there. But one day we will be in heaven with God in a perfect place that will be brand new. Do you like brand new? I like brand new, don't you? I live in a home that's 28 years old and stuff has fallen apart. And I have to fix it. I like new. God has a new place for us where all of the old is going to be destroyed. And he has a new place for those who are his in Christ Jesus. Some key words there are new. He's preparing a new place. A, a few other key words are passed away or phrases. Uh, there will be no more of the old earth. And so part of the beauty of heaven is the fact that it's brand new. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Secondly, we will reside in the new city, the new Jerusalem. We will reside in the new city and the new Jerusalem. Now, some of you are going, man, Todd, I'm not, a, I'm not a city guy. This might be a problem for me. I'm a country guy, you know. I like living out in the sticks, okay. I, I get that. I moved to Hilton Head. It's a little quieter here than it is in the city. Take a look at what verses 2 and then 10 says from John's description in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta. I was a suburban city boy, I guess. But I never liked going downtown, into downtown Atlanta. I just never really liked going downtown. And I remember um, as a high schooler saying, I, I love to, you know, I like to come downtown, but I would never want to live here. And I remember a senior trip. We went up to uh, uh, Scroon Lake, New York on a senior class trip. And um, we drove through one day and we visited New York City. And so as a senior in high school, I visited New York City. And I remember looking at my friends saying this phrase, I'd love, I like visiting here. This is a nice place, but I'd never want to what? Live here. I'd never want to live here. I'd never want to live in New York City, ever. Cynthia and I went on a couple of vacations. Actually, we honeymooned in New York City for a few days, and I remember looking at her in 1995 saying, man, I love this place, but I'd never want to live here. Went on several vacations with some of our friends in 2000, the 2000s, early 2000s, late 1990s, and I remember saying to them, this is a great place, but I'd never want to Guess where I lived and moved in, in 2005? New York City. And I became a city boy. I kind of fell in love with city. The city that God has prepared for us is beyond compare with any city that we'll ever see. Just its expanse alone, just its size alone is absolutely amazing. Some of you have been to cities. There are beautiful cities all over the world. Some of you have been to some of these cities. Take a look at some of these cities. Rome, Italy. Some of you have been there. Maybe some of you lived there for a while. There are some beautiful cities all over the world. There's Shanghai at night. It's gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. Chicago. What a beautiful picture. And when we look at cities, sometimes we have to get 
at 40,000 feet to kind of get out of the mess. And then we start seeing the beauty of it. And we see the lights. And we see the brilliance. Look at that picture of New York City. All those lights and that brilliance. It's amazing. But the city that God has prepared for us is absolutely beyond compare. Take a look at the next point. The city is expansive beyond anything that we can really hardly even imagine. It's unlike anything that we know of or can really comprehend. Take a look at what uh, John says in Revelation 21, 12 through 17. He said, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes, those are the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, three on each side. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. By the way, just for a moment, anytime you see Lamb in Revelation, that's Jesus Christ. That's the Son of God, the Lamb of God. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Now, we kind of may breeze over that, that, that word right there, and height, they're equal, but do you see what John is describing? God showed him heaven. He showed him this new Jerusalem, this new city. It's a cubed city. It's something that we can't even process. We can't really even get our minds around. Verse 17, he also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. I love the fact that in this moment, the angel gave him the measurements that John could then understand because we today, because of history and archaeology, we can have some idea of what it's like. Here's what it's like. One theologian described it this way. The city is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. That would be like going from the East Coast, where we are right now, and going all the way to Colorado, and going from the Canadian border all the way to the bottom tip of Florida. That's how long and how wide but then he goes on to describe its height, and it's 1,500 miles high. 1,500 miles high. That would be about the level of some of the lowest satellites in space. That's how high the city of New Jerusalem is going to be. It's expansive beyond our imagination, and I promise you that if you're a country person, you will still like the new city of Jerusalem, I promise. Because as expansive as it is, it's going to be equally as beautiful. Let's keep moving on. The city is made of precious jewels, pearls, gold, and glass. He says this in verse 18. He says, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was of pure gold, like clear, white, uh, clear glass. Jasper is like a red quartz, so we have the color of red. Verse 19, the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, 
the third was agate, the fourth emerald. Those colors and those uh, different uh, jewels uh, that he just mentioned there, if you're a geologist, you would know that there's red included in that blue. There's uh, a striped rainbow. That's what agate is. There's green that would be included in that. This is what the city's made of. It's absolutely beautiful. Verse 20, the first, the fifth is onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. He's talking about the most brilliant colors, black and red and orange and yellow and green and pink and red and light green and dark green and yellows, different shades of yellows, baby blues, green. The city will be absolutely magnificent, absolutely beautiful, beyond anything that we can comprehend. But not only that, look at verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. The 12 gates that he described were 12 pearls. Each of the gate was made with a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I don't know about you, but when I've heard that verse before, I've kind of pictured a gate like maybe we have, and we have a lot of gates around here, uh, you know, on Hilton Head Island, and then this giant pearl on top of it. But the more I study, the more I realize the gate itself is made of a giant pearl. That's a big pearl, isn't it? If somebody found that in the Atlantic Ocean on Hilton Head, they'd be set for life. It's a beautiful, we'll be walking through actual gates that are made of pearl. But not only will it be expansive beyond measure and beautiful beyond what we can comprehend, but it will be continually bright. Revelation 21, 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus. Revelation 22, skipping over one chapter, verse 5, says, and night will be no more. There will, there will be no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be its light. The city will also be free, this is the next point, of crime and pollution. Isn't that great, that the city will be free of crime and pollution? The Bible says in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, and no one who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Better than that, the next point, is that there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, or pain. Oh man, doesn't that sound good to you? No death, no mourning, no crying or pain. In week four, we're going to get to what we do in heaven, so I'm not going to talk about that too much more, but look at verse uh, four of Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The next point, the city is the dwelling place of God. Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And Revelation 21, verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty. That's why this next point is true. Because God is there, the city will radiate his glory. Verse, 20, verse 11 says, Having the glory of God, it's radiant. Talking about the city is like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. But the main point that I want to make this morning is given all that, given the brilliance of heaven, given the brilliance of this great city, that if you are a Christ follower, if you've said yes to Jesus, that you have the hope of one day, 
all of that pales in comparison to this last point, and that is, is that heaven will be the place where Jesus Christ will be physically revealed to us. We will get to see the Son of God, the Lamb who died for the forgiveness of sins. He'll be revealed to us. Look at what chapter 5 says, going back to the first part of the book, when John first saw heaven in verse 13, he said there's, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, all the beautiful descriptions of this city, all the beautiful jewels, all the golden streets that look like glass, all of that, the, per, the, the, the way that we are going to have no more pain, the way that we're going to have no more tears or crying or mourning, all of that is great. But the best part of heaven is that Jesus himself is going to be there. Heaven is absolutely a real place. Our myth today is proven by Scripture. Heaven is a real place. But I want you to capture the key thought this morning is that we ought to live life not with heaven in mind. We hear that often. But we ought to live life with the greatest anticipation of seeing Jesus there one day. All creation points to God's glory. Everything describes and points to who he is as God. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, is the thing that most definitely points to his glory because it's what he did for you and for me. And we'll get to see him there. And so I want to leave you with this question. As brilliant as heaven is, as wonderful as our eternal destination, if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, will be, if all those other things that John described, all the beauty and the expanse of heaven is not there, would it be enough for you to just see Jesus? Let's pray this morning. God, as we consider what your word has to say about heaven. And as we begin this journey over these next six weeks, trying to understand, trying to get just a glimpse from your word about what heaven is all about, God, I pray that we would start by living our lives with the greatest of anticipation that we will one day get to see your son. Jesus, you willingly gave your life on the cross for each one of us, for all of humanity, so that one day we could live in God with this beautiful place that John described. But God, as excited as we may get about heaven, as, uh, with, with great hope that we have about no more mourning and no more pain, God, some of us today are in so much pain, we would love to have just a little piece of that. God, I pray that we could live our lives with the fact that if Jesus was the only thing that was revealed to us in heaven, we would live it with great anticipation and great hope. And Father God, I pray for those who may come in here over these next few weeks who may not know you as their Savior. I pray for those who are in here right now who they may not know you as their Savior. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just reveal to them that they can make a decision even today to accept you as their Savior if they would just give themselves to you. 
And Father God, I pray as we walk through this that you would just reveal truth, that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us about heaven, about our eternal destination. And God, I pray that it's crystal clear and understandable what our hope is and how much excitement and anticipation we can have because Jesus is going to be there. God, I pray that like my grandfather said just a few weeks ago, I just can't wait to see Jesus. Father, I pray that you would live our lives, that we would live our lives, that you would help us to live our lives with that great anticipation in mind. Father God, be with us and guide us as we go through this journey, as we wait for the hope of seeing you there. In Jesus' name I pray. 